Welcome to another edition of The Soundcast. Konnichiwa, everyone. Christopher Coleman here with TrackSounds.com with another special interview edition of the Soundcast. This time, our interviewee is composer Joris Demand, who has written the score for the newly released game, the highly anticipated Killzone 2, which uh, has just been released and has been getting much love from the critics and much love from those who've already gotten to play it. And I will count myself among them starting tomorrow when my copy gets to my house and I commence wasting uh, hours of my day over the next few weeks to try to finish the thing. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, The music you hear in the background now was written by Joris Deman and is a part of the Killzone 2 soundtrack. Um, In the course of our interview, he does talk about the potential for an official release of the score. And let me tell you, if you like... Grab you by the head, twist you around, punch you in the face, thematic, orchestral kind of music. You're going to love this. And uh, let's just hope that there's going to be an official soundtrack release. He also shares about his experience in coming back to the franchise. Of course, he wrote the uh, score for the, the very first game, Killzone, uh, a number of years ago. And now he's back. And he compares and contrasts his experience this time out with uh, his first run at it. And uh, I think you're going to find this, in- this uh, interview very interesting and uh, entertaining it's been a couple years since Killzone Um, what was it like coming back into the franchise and and, and revisiting uh, that music that you established a couple years ago well I mean it was almost like you know meeting an old friend in a way which sounds incredibly corny but I suppose (laughs) it's still still true Um, you know you've you've lived with that franchise for a while I mean I used to work as a, as a musical director at Guerrilla so I was I was part of the part of the franchise so to speak and then a few years ago I kind of branched out on my own and decided that I wanted to go freelance so it was nice to kind of return to a, to a kind of a familiar ground and, and I realized that it's a style and a, and a type of music that I'm very comfortable in and uh, and also just really nice to see what what you know what the people have done at Guerrilla with 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 the franchise because you know, obviously there's Killzone 1, which kind of set, you know, set it up, set the whole storyline and all the characters up. And then there's Liberation, which was kind of a continuation, but at the same time, because it wasn't quite a first-person, you know, it was a third-person shooter and not a first-person shooter. And so, story-wise, they did a few different things with that. And so I think Killzone 2 is more of a return to form compared to Killzone 1. And um, so it was, it was really great to kind of come back to that and, and see what they'd done with it in terms of the characters and in terms of the, uh, the environments. And so it was great to be back on familiar ground and to, um, to kind of see whether I could take it to another level, um, you know, retain some of the, th- the themes that we had for Kills on One and at the same time musically trying to do something that was a bit more um, beefy and a bit more meaty than, than perhaps the first one. Right. Well, now this time it's on uh, PS3, of course, um, with a lot of increased... Uh, power for you to work within with the music what what did it allow you to do or what could you take advantage of now that you are working on uh, for working on a game that was going to be a ps3 game 
Well, I mean, the first thing that's apparent is just kind of the audio quality is that, you know, you're, you're kind of able to use higher bit rates for the music. Um, we're actually able to use full surround sound for the music now as well, as opposed to kind of Dolby ProLogic, which is kind of surround, but not true surround. Um, you know, in, in this case, we could go up to 7.1, and I think a lot of the game environments and stuff are in 7.1. Some of the music is, is 5.1 because... Music-wise, 5.1 and 7.1 isn't really going to have a huge bearing on, on what the music sounds like. So, but just to be able to use full 5.1 surround sound, you know, made it made it made it quite a big difference to it. Uh, and also, there was just more scope for the music. You know, this time around, we weren't just um, stuck to doing cutscene music, which partially partially on Killzone One was a creative decision, but it was also a technical issue that we really couldn't really have any kind of in-game music because there was so much level streaming going on that playing music on top of that with the in-game sound effects and ambience and stuff just wasn't really quite feasible on the PlayStation 2. And of course now with Blu-ray and, and, and the power of the PlayStation 3 and being able to use better compression for the music uh, basically meant that we could do all those things. And so we, we kind of looked at the game and decided where we're going to use music and how we're going to use it um, and, and so realized that we could actually have in-game music and that it was actually helping the game was adding kind of you know to the overall experience and so that's why we kind of decided to have both um, and so we ended up using orchestral music for the cutscenes and, uh, and MIDI music for the uh, for the in-game music and have that music be you know the in-game music be interactive as well right well how do you how do you go about that when you're when when you know you have to tackle a project like this uh, do you obviously you have your thematic stuff that some you've carried over from the from the first game uh, but do you write your in-game music first or do you write your cut sequence, you know, their big symphonic stuff first, or how do you, or do you do them simultaneously? Um, well, for me so far, the way it's worked is that usually the in-game music happens first, and then the cutscene music comes in at the end. Uh, and there's, there's, you know, that's mainly a practical reason uh, because in Killzone 2, um, all of the cutscenes are done using in-game technology, so they're kind of. I would almost call them live cutscenes. You know, they're not pre-rendered. They're all using the in-game engine and using the in-game characters. Uh, everything except the first main introduction cutscene, which is kind of a, a kills on tradition to have that rendered and have that kind of set up the story. And then everything else is done uh, using using in-game uh, technology. Um, and because that in-game technology is dependent on a number of factors, like if, if a story takes place in a certain level and that level is still being designed or still being tweaked or, or you know, or the, um, the graphics team decides that some of the environments need to change or, you know, some story element has changed which means that, you know, that has bearing on, on what the level looks like, then obviously that has an effect on, on uh, the cutscenes because, you know, if, if let's say um, something's taking place on the spaceship and suddenly the game designers decide, well, actually, no, this section is not going to take place in the spaceship. We're actually going to do that at a level later on. So this cutscene actually needs to take place in a desert. Then you would have a really weird situation if the cutscene would still be on the spaceship. And so they're kind of beholden to the game designers um, and, and everybody else is kind of involved in that process to uh, get those levels finished before they can finish the cutscenes. And so it, it kind of, yeah makes sense to then have the cutscenes, you know, the music and stuff take place at the end as well, because then we kind of know that they're finalized. So I spend the majority of the time um, working on the in-game music because there was quite a lot of it and it was interactive, which kind of brings its own set of challenges. And then we tackled the, uh, the cutscene music at the end, and that was, you know, it was a reasonably compressed uh, schedule for that, but 
again, that's not unusual in, in game development, and I've never really had it any other way, so um, that's kind of how it goes. Uh, so you only had, from what I've gathered, only a few weeks to, to, to do this project, is that right? Only the cutscenes. The uh, the actual in-game music. Uh, I had quite a you know I had quite a few months to to work on that. Um, I'm actually well, a few months actually quite a bit more than that. Um, basically, from the beginning of um, 2008, kind of March, yeah, March April, kind of started working on it and started working out how we we're going to use the interactive music. I mean, it was a bit of R&D involved in that as well as to you know, how we're going to do this interactive music. There's different ways you can tackle it. And, you know, so there was a bit of to and, to and froing of saying how we're going to do this music and let's do a few tests and see how it works. And once that system was in place and once we decided how we're going to do it, then it was actually getting down to composing it and looking at the levels and kind of deciding what kind of music was going to go there and how it was going to work. Okay. Well, how would you compare the two, your two experiences you know, with Killzone One and now Killzone Two, how does how does that whole how do each of those experiences compare to you? Well, I mean, each is, is kind of a, a really unique experience in its own. I mean, Killzone One was was just a great experience because there was a bit more music in terms of cutscenes. I think we had about forty five minutes as opposed to half an hour, um, and that was just interesting because it was kind of the first time I really worked with a with a full symphony orchestra. I'd, I'd done a test recording of the Helga's March uh, before, because um, when we were actually pitching the game to Sony, when it wasn't even called Killzone yet, it was called, I think it was called something like Colonial Marines or something, uh, and it was just an idea that was being pitched to Sony and, and, and other publishers, um, because we were trying to do a first-person shooter for the Sony, uh, for the PlayStation 2, um, and we were trying to sell this idea and trying to sell this, you know, this kind of epic storyline. And so I suggested to, to one of the directors saying, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could do this music with, you know, with a live orchestra and really kind of take it to another level because everybody's doing MIDI stuff and it would just be great to do something live. And this was, I think by now it must have been like, I don't know, eight years ago or something. So it was quite, at that time, game scores done, being done with orchestra were relatively new. I mean, some people were doing it, but not as much as, it, as it's being done now. And so it was quite a novel idea. And so... He said, well, if you can, you know, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of budget for that. And if you can find someone who's crazy enough to, uh, to record it for that kind of price, then you're free to do so. And so I found um, an orchestra in Moscow, the, uh, the Moscow Symphony Orchestra, that could do it for a very agreeable rate. And, uh, and so we recorded the main Halvus theme there. And that kind of became the, 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 the musical benchmark uh, for the game. And so once we'd done that and we'd sold the game and we said, OK, that's great, we really like that. And I'd do another, you know, 40 minutes of that. Um, then I had to kind of write the rest of the music for the, for the cutscenes. And that was, you know, it was a big challenge because I'd not written that volume of music before, um, you know, for an orchestra. And, uh, and so that, that was very challenging. Um, but it was, you know, it was kind of a, a trial by fire and kind of got through that okay and, and was pretty happy with what came out of it. Um, and it kind of, you know, and it really connected with people. People really seemed to like the kind of big epic orchestral approach and a lot of people remember the the Helga's March and um, and so this time around when we actually got to go to Abbey Road which which originally wasn't even necessarily going to happen we were kind of looking at different places to record and, and kind, of, kind of trying to figure out time wise what we are going to do and then in the end it was decided that the best thing we could do uh, was, was record um, at, at, at Abbey Road um, with a, a bunch of guys called Nimrod Studios. 
um, they were kind of, um, yeah, helping with, with, with organizing that and, and doing some of the producing on that. Um, and, um, I mean, that was amazing, you know, because suddenly you're, you're kind of, having worked with, with kind of Eastern, um, yeah, Eastern orchestras before and then suddenly working with these world-renowned players. I mean, some of these guys, you know, recorded on Star Wars and Indiana Jones, you know, where the, the trumpet player who's done the, you know, the, the, the Indiana Jones theme, you know, the trumpet player. Um, and he was just, you know, it was absolutely amazing. And to suddenly work with that kind of level of musicians made me realize that those people really bring something else to the table. And it's not just about your music anymore, but how, you know, how they kind of take your music and, and, and take that to another level. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's a different experience in the sense of realizing how much good musicians can bring, you know, can bring to a recording session. And that's not to say that, you know, the, the Prague guys or the Moscow guys are bad, not by any stretch of the imagination, but there is definitely a difference. And them kind of understanding this type of music and, and knowing how to really kind of push that and, and, and you know, and, and play with such kind of intensity really kind of brought this score to, to another level. And so it's been a unique learning experience for me. But, um, yeah, I mean, they've both been fantastic experiences in their uh, in their own right. Well, would you say you're a little, you're spoiled now having worked with members of the LSO? Oh, and totally, <laughs> totally. How can you not be? I mean, you know, this is this is an absolute dream for me to to work with these kind of people, and um, yeah, I feel very spoiled because next time I'm going, you know, I might get the chance to record with an orchestra. It's almost like you, you don't really want to do anything else. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, yeah, absolutely spoiled, and um, yeah, I, I couldn't really have wished for a, for a better result, really. Uh, now, would you say the diff one of the differences you're talking about how the those members of the LSO play versus those in Prague or elsewhere? Would it would you say that because the members of the the, the Prague orchestra are playing classical, pure classical music more, um, and are, and so have a bent towards that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably. I mean, especially with the Moscow guys, I noticed a little bit of that. Um, uh, it's 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 really strange. It's just they're different performances. I wouldn't even say um, that they're necessarily any worse than the English players, but it's just a different approach to it, uh, where you can sense that the English players, having played on so many movie sessions, kind of understand what you're trying to do and kind of go, all right, okay, I see what he's doing, and so let's do it this way, and you kind of get the sound that you're looking for. And then, I mean, there are other elements as well, like you know. Op op you know the, the the quality of their instruments. You know the fact that they've played together lots, um, and I mean you know and equally a lot of it's probably down to my writing as well. You know having gained experience from working with them last time, you kind of f figure out things like all right this works and this didn't quite work and why didn't that work and so you don't make those mistakes again and you write something that you know is going to work with the with the players that you're um, that you're working with. Um, and, and so each each time I I do something like this, it's it's for me it's a learning experience as well. I mean I don't know everything. I'm I'm largely self-taught, so um, a, a lot of it is is for me is a learning process of seeing how they play it and kind of knowing how it's going to sound. But by the same token, um, coming back from the session and knowing all right these are things that worked and these are things that didn't work, and so next time I'll have to you know have to try something different. Right. Well, well, in this go around you didn't have to handle the sound design um would you say that was an advantage to you or a disadvantage or neither um i think it's probably um i actually think it was an advantage to to a large degree um 
there were more sound designers on the project this time around, and I always think that, you know, the opinion of different people helps, you know, to, to kind of get something creatively really, really, that's, that's really, really strong. You know, they had a really strong sound design team on Kills on this time around. You know, it's, I think it's hard to compare the two because, you know, you're working with a different, in, you know, you're working in, in different, uh, a different ballpark as well. There was so much more possible this time around with more sound memory, more sound capabilities with the hardware, um, you know, more, more capabilities in the terms of, of, of the, um, the ambiences in the game and stuff like that. Um, but also not having to deal with both things at the same time is probably is an advantage because you can kind of take a back seat and, and look at how someone else tackles certain things and go, all right, that's really interesting. I, you know, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have necessarily done it that way, but actually his way is better. Or you know, it's, it's actually quite good to, um, to not try and do everything. That's, that's definitely one of the things I took away from Kills on One is that I probably had my finger, you know, fingers in too many pies at one point um, because I was also partially involved with some of the storyline and some of the other bits and some of the cutscenes. And now it's actually quite nice to kind of say, actually, I'm just going to focus on this bit, which is the music and on the cutscenes, uh, writing for the cutscenes, and not get involved with too many other things. And I think that's probably, yeah, definitely helped the project. I think the sound guys at, at Gorilla have done an absolutely stellar job. Um, which I think is, is seen in, in some of the reviews as well. Um, it's, it sounds, you know, it sounds really good. It sounds great. Um, and um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad actually this time around not to have been involved because I think it would have been too much, definitely, uh, with the volume of music that I had to write as well. Sure. Well, is there? Can you? How can you draw, or do you draw upon your your sound designing, sound editing experience? Uh, while you're, even though you're not doing that on this particular game, can you draw on that experience while you're composing? Oh, totally, because I think one of the important things with sound design is, is knowing when to do it and when not to. Hmm. Um, and um, that's, that's something I'm, I'm still to a degree learning as well, but um, obviously knowing how sound design works and, and looking at scenes and thinking, okay, what would I do? It, it would help, for instance, if I would be working on a cutscene and some of the sound design wouldn't be finished yet. Um, you know, you can kind of look at a scene and, and kind of anticipate what's going to happen sound design-wise with it and kind of know, all right, if, this, you know, if there's a big spaceship going, taking off in this particular scene, um, then I probably know not to musically do too much there because it's probably going to be, you know, there's probably going to be a big sound effect there or, or you know, something like that. Um, and, and also in terms of just holding back the music, I mean, I have a tendency to overwrite and, and really kind of write a lot of music and a lot of notes. Um, and or not necessarily overwrite the music, but just orchestrate really densely. And uh, and it was good this time around to kind of realise that and, and kind of say, oh, actually, I don't really need to do that much. You know, if there's sound design going on in this bit, then I can actually hold back a little bit, <laughs> and it will probably save me a little bit of time in the process as well. So it was definitely in certain cases a, a less is more approach. Um, but it, yeah, it, it definitely helped in certain instances. Absolutely. Okay. Well, the the music I've heard thus far. I mean, there's there's a there's a there's a lot of stuff in there that people of uh, who like tr big bold film music are gonna like. Um, and then the in-game music. Once you said there's there's a lot of that electronica sort of feel there. And and you're from both worlds. Do you get the same kind of pleasure writing and hearing both, or uh, equally, or is there one you like doing more than the other? Um, <laughs> it almost varies on any given day, really. I mean, sometimes I'm really enjoying just doing the big bombastic stuff, so to speak, and really kind of do something that's very percussive and very aggressive. 
Um, I think one of the pieces that I send you, which I don't know if it will appear on the website as well, which is the ATAC attack uh, piece, which is very kind of electronic in a way, and it was kind of one of the things they were asking for is saying, you know, we really like orchestral stuff, but we're also a bit worried about having a, a game that is just full of just orchestral stuff, and could you maybe try and put some modern elements in there to kind of juxtapose the, you know, the cutscenes with some of the in-game music and, and have a bit of variety in there. You know, and that's, that's an interesting challenge to do something that I wanted to do something that still retained some of the orchestral elements, uh, but but had some of those modern elements in there, and yeah, and trying to juxtapose them a little bit. Um, I find it, 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 it depends. I mean, I I really enjoy writing themes and writing big themes, and and one of the things I really try to do in the orchestral score is is to kind of create light motifs that find themselves uh, back, you know, into other pieces in in some form or way. So that, for instance, the Axis intro, which is the kind of the, um, it's called Axis, which is which is a silly name because it's just um, the company that actually makes the um, makes the intro cinematic, but that's usually what is referred to when we're scoring it. Okay. Um, <laughs> I saw that. Cool. I wondered what that was, but now yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's it's the Birth of War um, track, um, and and so I usually try to use that as a um, as a kind of. Um, almost container themes so that there's a couple of themes in there that then later on I can repeat in some other shape or form so Fizari's theme who's kind of the, the main bad guy of the game is, is in there and so there's like two or three other tracks where that particular theme th finds itself back into it and there's a, a you know there's an ISA theme as well <clears throat> which is featured in the Helga's March and that finds itself back a couple of times during the during the score at some of the pivotal moments uh, some of the pivotal story developments and so really trying to almost score it in, a, in an old school kind of way where, um, where you have those light motifs and, and they fight themselves back I think themes in general are, uh, are very important to, you know, to establish, establish emotion and establish uh, some kind of continuity yeah absolutely uh, do, what, what would you say your, um, if you had to describe the music for Killzone 1 and 2 in one word what, how would you summarize it um, without wanting to sound arrogant, <laughs> I would I would call it epic. I think, epic. yeah, epic. I think in general, it's got a very grand and kind of yeah big sound to it. Uh, yeah. There was little holding back on it. Let's put it that way. Yeah. You know, if there's any drama, it's big drama. You know, it's <laughs> right. Well, uh, I, I'd have to agree. That that's a good word. That is a good word for it. <laughs> uh, now. Uh, I know it's been asked of you before, and I always ask every time too, and usually get a similar answer. But I'll ask anyway: Is is there any progress on a on a full soundtrack release of your music for this game? Uh, well, we're still in talks with uh, with, with Sony and, and some some other people to try and make that happen. Um, obviously, I, I think it totally should happen, and I've had so many requests already. Um, and we even had, you know, even <laughs> I got a link the other day from someone who actually saw that someone had bootlegged Kills on One. Um, on eBay, and not just like a one-off CD, but no, someone actually run a production line and actually was was selling these by the bucket loads, and uh, and so it would almost seem silly not to. Um, I really hope we can make it happen. It's unfortunately one of those things that's not always up to the composer. Um, it, it's kind of dealing with with the, the you know the publisher and and the company that holds the rights to to make that happen. And um, but I'm hoping that especially in the day and age of digital downloads that uh, the risk to them to do that is, is so little that it's you know that it's worth doing it. it. It used to be the problem that 
game soundtracks in general don't tell to send that don't don't tend to sell that great. Uh, and so if there's any kind of CD manufacturing involved, then it's a big risk for them that they not they don't necessarily want to take. Uh, and so they might just you know keep it for say a special edition or something like that. But now with things like iTunes and and you know all those kind of online tune stores. Um, it should be feasible, and I'm, I'm really kind of pushing for it to to make that happen. So, uh, all I can say is watch your space. But it's definitely something that we're uh, that we're pushing for, and the sooner the better, as as far as I'm concerned. And do you have some other projects you can talk about now that are in the works? Um, well, I'm I'm working on a small game at the moment called Scrap Metal, which is for uh, a friend of mine uh, who works for Slick Entertainment. Uh, it's an Xbox Live game, which is coming out in the next couple of months, I think. Which is going to be completely different. It's going to be kind of, yeah, hard-edged industrial type stuff. So it's going to be quite a, uh, uh, yeah, an escape of my usual kind of orchestral onslaught. Um, <laughs> and then I'm actually kind of just looking ahead to future projects. I haven't got any kind of major gigs lined up at the moment, but I'm I'm hoping that with Killzone's release, um, some interesting projects will uh, will come my way. You've been listening to a special interview with composer Joris Demand, who has written the score for the new game, Killzone 2. Special thanks to Joris Demand for taking the time to chat with us. Also to his representative, Trevor Best from Air Adele, and Sony Entertainment as well, who is releasing Killzone 2. Um, we're going to leave you with some of the music from Killzone 2, a track entitled Birth of War Retribution, one of the best tracks on the soundtrack. This is Christopher Coleman with TrackSounds.com, your host and producer, and I want to thank you for taking the time to listen in with us for another edition of the Soundcast. Soundcast.